This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 22nd of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, it's really time for a Federal Corruption Commission, and we look at how close the Speaker of the House came to resigning in Federal Parliament. I'm Eddie Djokovic, Editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Philologist. We've always thought that the smaller levels of support for independent journalism are much better than setting up a blind trust. So thank you very much to all those new Patreon subscribers. We're getting more and more each week, so thank you very much. And just a reminder that if you want to get a Julia Gillard or Gough Whitlam t-shirt or coffee mug for Christmas, now is the time to start ordering. You can order one through our website. All the details are at newpolitics.com.au. David, I've always felt that drinking coffee from a mug with either Julia Gillard or Gough Whitlam on the side makes that coffee just taste that little bit better. And also wearing a t-shirt is also a reminder of how things could have been if we had their type of leadership today. It takes the bitterness out of the coffee and it sweetens the sugar you might put in it. We need to be continually reminded of what good leadership is and not filter it through the vested interests of media who didn't like those leaders and did their very best to destroy them as leaders. Neither were perfect, but they were a far sight better than what we have today. So you can get those t-shirts through our website, newpolitics.com.au, and we'll be setting up some new designs over the next couple of weeks as well. So keep a look out for these on our website, and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. It seems like the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption is doing its job effectively with Eddie Obede, his son Moses and former New South Wales Minister Ian MacDonald all sentenced to jail over conspiracy to extract $100 million from a mine licence in the Bylong Valley. And then we had a former Premier and New South Wales public servants appearing at the ICAC hearings to decide whether Gladys Berejiklian acted corruptly when a $5.5 million grant was provided to a Clay Target shooting association in 2017. There have been criticisms from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, about how the New South Wales model is not the one that he wants to implement federally. But each and every one of his criticisms has been found to be totally incorrect. He claimed that the New South Wales ICAC was too quick to make public accusations. Now, this is not actually correct. It held secret hearings way before it revealed any of the dealings with Gladys Berejiklian. He claimed that the way that Gladys Berejiklian was treated was unfair and the public could see that it was unfair. And that's the reason why he didn't want to apply that standard to federal politicians. But again... This was totally incorrect. Berejiklian was afforded the same respect that the law would offer to anyone else in her position. And so far, we can see that the ICAC is holding all sides of politics to account without fear or favour. And it's also a model that should be applied to federal politics. 
A prime minister resisting a federal ICAC is probably a corrupt prime minister. Is this a fair assessment or do you think I'm just being a little bit too simplistic? Everybody loves the police till you break the law. Now, I will be very fair to the prime minister. There may be other more appropriate models at a federal level. New South Wales ICAC is one of the best organisations of its type in the world. One of the few that hasn't been taken over by mates of the government too. It's not open to cronyism. It may get things wrong because it's a human organisation, but it doesn't appear to be corrupt. It doesn't appear to be corruptible. And it doesn't appear to be biased one way or the other. And in the current political environment, this is something to be deeply treasured. I think IBAC in Victoria is very similar uh, that should be held up as a model of how to do it. Now, when I say there might be better models, you might want it as part of the New South Wales Police's duty and add that in. Uh, Advantages to that... ICAC can only recommend charges that may not be followed through for many reasons. ICAC is only an inquiry. It's not a criminal trial. We've got to remember that too. It may be that Gladys Berejiklian is actually innocent of any criminal activity that seems corrupt. Now, this seeming corruption may be highlighted and some loopholes may be closed and that will be the end of it, making it harder for future premiers to be held to account in such or not held to account in such a way however the independent free of everyone model is a good one because they can go through and i've been watching not every day but uh, most days the barristers go through the evidence and it is an absolute model of how to forensically build up a case and how to forensically let witnesses tell their story and in the level of detail that if you haven't actually done anything wrong, you get out okay. If you have done something wrong, it becomes apparent very quickly that you're in the wrong. And the New South Wales Public Service too. The public servants who have been interviewed, for the most part, have been exemplars of public administration, doing jobs that they found distasteful, but it was their role as public servants to do. Also providing free and frank advice that gets ignored, basically. It's been a very incredible process. The witnesses have squirmed. Stuart Ayres looks sick as the questions are coming his way. He's in it very deeply, it seems. Well, the Obeds and Ian MacDonald, it's absolutely good riddance to bad rubbish. People like this should not be anywhere near politics. And and the same applies to Gladys Berejiklian. If she is found to be corrupt or has acted corruptly, well, she shouldn't be anywhere near politics either. And jail time for the Obeds and Ian MacDonald, they are putting up an appeal. So there's a possibility that they may not go to jail, but this should act as a deterrent to all people within the political system. Now, it probably won't remove corruption completely, but it does offer adequate punishment for those people who are found to be corrupt. And it does also send out the message, well, either don't behave corruptly or don't get caught, I guess. So it's either one of those two. And we can also see that the wheels of this process turn very slowly. These tenders occurred between 2007 and 2009 and that led to a 30 million dollar sale at that time that's when the ICAC stepped in otherwise it would have been a sale of 100 million dollars one problem in federal politics is that 
similar situations of pretty obvious corruptions are very slow to be investigated, and if ever. And it's usually only if there's a political advantage to one side of politics to proceed with an investigation. And then it has to go through this convoluted process of going through the National Audit's Office, a referral in Parliament, Senate estimates, and then a legal chain through different state public prosecution departments and based on where these events occurred. And for example, I can think of a couple of issues that could be worth investigating. A $30 million purchase of land that was only worth $3 million in Western Sydney, land owned by Barnaby Joyce in the Narrabri gas fields, other federal MPs with land holdings and interests in mining and gas exploration, the involvement of Liberal Party donors in the rollout of the vaccination program. Now, for me, these are pretty obvious items of corruption, but all of these slip through the cracks because there's not enough time or political resources to investigate them properly. And and then even when the time comes, well, you know, by that time, the caravan's moved on and it falls off the political agenda. We can see that Morrison wants a watered down ICAC and also one which doesn't have retrospective powers. And here's the answer for why he doesn't want to see a powerful federal ICAC. It would cause too many political problems for him as well as legal problems for his ministers. And it doesn't matter if they remain in government or remain in parliament, a proper federal ICAC will still chase them down and investigate what they've done in the past. And Morrison just simply doesn't want that. Yeah, even if he's got nothing to do with it, he's allowed it. And as the general said a few years back, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And it's clear that the Prime Minister, for purely political reasons, will accept standards that really aren't part of the local community standards. And for examples, uh, this is what episode 85, we've got 84 84 other episodes (laughs) that go through the standards that the public is starting to not accept. And we can't keep walking on or jogging on anymore. We've got to stop and clean these messes up. There's also another issue that has arisen from the New South Wales ICAC hearings. Daryl Maguire, he's the the one that resigned several years ago because of all of these issues that were developing within his seat. He was also supporting a cash for visa scheme through his parliamentary office. He was actually taking a 10% commission from Chinese business visa seekers through a business called Gateway. And they were also falsely employing people to help them with their visa applications. And Scott Morrison was the immigration minister at that time when Daryl Maguire had this cash for visa scheme operating through his office. Now, you can't just set up a cash for visa scheme without the involvement of the federal immigration department. Daryl Maguire is not a, he's not a migration agent, so there would have been a lot of things that would have happened for him to be able to be involved in this sort of scheme. Scott Morrison was the immigration minister at that particular time. He's denied any contact with Daryl Maguire during this time, and he's also denied any involvement with Daryl Maguire during the time that he was the Prime Minister, but of course he would say this. Scott Morrison is a pathological liar when it comes to political statements. Now, there's no suggestion that he did become involved, but if you have a look at the links, the New South Wales State Liberal Party and Scott Morrison being the Immigration Minister at the time, why wouldn't Scott Morrison be involved in this process? There are circumstances where you might think the Minister for Immigration could be innocent in this case. The applicant applies to the department and it's all done at an administrative level and then the 
minister signs it off with maybe other businesses not really realising. And if you've presented it properly, the department hasn't seen any red flags and in good faith the minister signs off. But again, the Liberal Party in New South Wales isn't a terribly large organisation and everybody knows everybody else more or less. And I would find it very hard to believe that Daryl Maguire's name wouldn't have popped up even in passing of, oh, and this one's run by Daryl Maguire, the member for Wagga. Oh, yeah, I had my photo taken with him. Yuck, yuck, yuck. I met him at a Liberal Party function, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, the question of how secret the relationship between Gladys and Daryl was too. Now, I'm very inclined to believe it was extremely secret because people on the outer, like us, Eddie, still hear about this type of stuff. I do find it hard to believe that the Premier and other ministers weren't at least somewhat aware of it, but she is a very private person and he had many, many reasons to keep it private. So it is possible, but I do find it hard to believe that there wasn't at least a tangential knowledge of what was going on with the Gateway Company when Scott Morrison signed this off. You can start to see why, personally, he wouldn't want these types of investigations because even if he is innocent, it's going to be a long investigation to clear his name. And the appearance of the former Premier Mike Baird, that was quite interesting at the New South Wales ICAC hearings this week. He seemed to be throwing Gladys Berejiklian under a bus and suggesting outrage when the affair with Daryl Maguire became public about 12 months ago. But maybe it's a pointer to his future career within the Liberal Party and also within federal politics. Why would he protect someone who might be a pre-selection competitor at a federal seat in the future? There was talk about Gladys Berejiklian running for federal politics as well. I, I suspect that that won't happen. Mike Baird is still a name that frequently pops up in talks about federal seats in the North Shore of Sydney. So could this be a case where he's just trying to keep his hands clean? And why would he support someone that could ruin his future political prospects as well? So we saw that Mike Baird, he was very eager to provide all of this information. And if we compare that with someone like Gladys Berejiklian, and we found out that through the preliminary hearings, her memory was not very good at all. And similar to what happened with Arthur Sinodinus, he seemed to completely forget about what happened with the Sydney Water Holdings many years ago. It's probably unreasonable to expect that you can remember everything, which is why, of course, uh, or part of the reason why public service documents everything. Having said that, it's quite unbelievable that you'd forget at least the broad strokes of a lot of the stuff they couldn't recall. You might forget everyone who was at a meeting you might forget the specifics of some of the decisions, but minutes have been kept, so you could refresh your memory with that. Watching it, one of the public servants forgot the job title of one of the people that he was dealing with. That really was irrelevant because he remembered everything else. And of course, they've had weeks to prepare. They, they were called two or three weeks ago. So you'd call up your personal notes, you'd call up any records you still had access to, and you'd go through it and you'd refresh your memory. And of course, as an ex-minister, you'd be afforded the courtesy of being able to see records that you signed off on. You can just go down to the department, say, hello, I'm 
Arthur Senadinus, I need the records for, for these because I've been called and I need to refresh my memory. And the minister would say, or the department would say, yes, of course, that's perfectly fine. You wouldn't be allowed to take them home, but you could sit down, take notes, and refresh your memory, which is what these public servants seem to have done. They studied it. I suspect Mike Baird did too, because I, I don't think Mike Baird was squeaky clean either. I think Gladys inherited a lot of his stuff, the whole powerhouse museum thing where they weren't allowed to develop it for two years, which just happened to be the amount of time it takes for all the clearances to get through. It was very dodgy. And then knocking down the children's hospital in Parramatta, one of the key heritage buildings in Parramatta, was just disgraceful. So Mike Baird, I don't think, is a shining light of integrity and honesty in public life anyway. I think you're right in that he is looking at a seat in federal politics, maybe, though he hasn't impressed in his post-premier life either it has been said if he is thinking of a move to federal politics Gladys may well have been a big speed bump in his way which is now removed you're listening to new politics you can subscribe to us on apple or google podcasts listen through soundcloud spotify and amazon audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at patreon Generally, we don't want to see corruption within politics, whether that's state, federal or local council levels. But the fact is, and it's a sad fact, that corruption does exist. And we actually do like talking about it because there's so much there. And we could become rich and famous if we just talked about the amount of corruption that goes on in politics at every single level within Australia. But corruption appears in different forms as well. The Speaker of the House, Tony Smith, he's been overruled by his own government, and that was after the Labor Party called for a referral over Christian Porter's blind trust that he set up to pay for his legal costs in a defamation case against the ABC. Now, I don't think you actually need a referral to know that this is an entirely corrupt and inappropriate behaviour by a federal MP. But still, if there's resistance to this process... Politics has to go through the normal process of referring an incident to Senate estimates and the possibility of a breach of the disclosure rules. And so far, so good. Tony Smith decided that, yes, there was a prima facie case to investigate the actions of Christian Porter, but the government voted against the Speaker. And this was the first time that this has ever happened in a parliament that has existed for 120 years. Now, people might not think too much about the Speaker of the House of Representatives, but the Speaker is actually at the pinnacle of the political and the parliamentary system. It's a little bit like the judge in a court of law, and the equivalent would be a judge making a decision in that court of law, and then the accused deciding, oh, hang on, those rulings don't apply to me. I'm just going to continue with my behaviour, and you can all go and get stuffed. This is a complete contempt of court. It would be a little bit like the mafia deciding which rules will apply and which ones don't, which fines are paid and which fines are not paid. It was actually quite an astonishing moment in federal politics, but not too much noise has been made about this, and I just find it quite surprising. 
I'm very angry about this. I believe that the Constitution of Australia is the pinnacle legal document that if you don't follow the Constitution, we have chaos. Now, I don't think that that means that the Constitution is a perfect document that can't be changed from time to time. For example, non-controversial thing, slightly controversial thing, shall we say. Um, At the moment, we we are a monarchy. The Constitution might... There are people out there, many people out there, who want to see it change to a Republican model. Okay, we can discuss that and we can we can work towards changing that. Free trade between the states. I don't think there's anyone out there who would want tariffs put up between the states, but it's one of the key um, document, one of the key. We can change that if we need to. Um, the Constitution only mentions a few personified roles. The Crown uh, and the 1953 uh, Regency Act names the Crown as Queen Elizabeth II and then the Governor-General. And the Crown is personified in Australia by the Governor-General when the Queen isn't here. And when the Queen dies, the Regency Act will be changed. We don't need to change the Constitution every time there's a change of monarch or a change of Governor-General, thankfully. You have the High Court, you have the Speaker of the House of Representatives and you have the President of the Senate. Under the Constitution, the Governor-General appoints a, a Federal Executive Council, essentially Cabinet. Now, the Constitution doesn't go into how you do this. And the Federal Executive Council is run by the Speaker. Now, we've set up our system of voting to do this and we followed the British model where the lower house, a majority of people in the lower house support a particular candidate to be the prime minister who does all the administrative work of setting up cabinet and advising the speaker who advises the governor general, etc, etc. The speaker is a key figure. And it's not often it happens. But if the speaker wants something done, the house does it. Speaker gets the casting vote. Essentially, the speaker is the chair of the meeting. And so as a result, for the speaker to say, there's a prima facie case to investigate this. No, he didn't say Porter was guilty. He just said, "Mm, looking at this, we should have a look at it, which was, to be fair, a very extraordinary thing for Smith to say. He's a member of the IPA. He's a fairly senior liberal. But for him to say it, and good on him. We have spoken about him before. And we didn't rate him as highly as other people have rated him as speaker, but we said he was a decent speaker, especially compared to Bronwyn Bishop. Tony Smith was actually on the verge of resigning. That's his authority completely gone as the Speaker of the House of Representatives. It was completely demolished. And he probably should have resigned to protect the position of Speaker. He absolutely should have resigned. And to indicate to the government that this sort of behaviour is completely unacceptable in Australia's democratic system or any democratic system. But the other thing to take into account that he actually is resigning at the next election, and he probably would have decided, well, if I resign right now, this is too disruptive and this would be a big distraction to the government. And, And we do have to remember that although he is the Speaker of the House, he's still a member of the Liberal Party and that's his first and foremost priority. And 
To me, this probably indicates that the election might actually be sooner than what we think. Now, we've consistently said, oh, look, it's probably not going to be November or December this year. It's going to be held in May 2022 or around that time. But if it was likely that the election was going to be held in May next year, and that was the government's thinking, and he'd be privy to these sort of discussions as well, he probably would have resigned during the week from his position as the Speaker of the House. But I suggest that because there's talk about the election happening pretty soon, maybe that's the main reason why he didn't resign. He was on the verge of resigning, but he would have thought, can't have a situation where it's too disruptive to the government's chances of being re-elected. That's a fair point. I still think he should have resigned because the Speaker is not supposed to be partisan. Now, in Australia, the Speaker has always been partisan. Mostly it's been through subtle means. Government heckles getting a slightly higher or slightly lower standard of being passed through than opposition heckles. Stuff like that. In the one time that a speaker acted like the British system was 1929, where Littleton Groom voted against the government and brought it down. The government went to election and it was one of the big wipeouts of a non-Labor government, the 1929 election. Uh, Stanley Bruce lost his seat. Groom's political career was finished because essentially in Australia, the speaker does have a partisan uh, approach. In England, the speaker is completely neutral. Speaker resigns all party affiliation, stops going to party meetings, and by convention is usually run pretty much unopposed in his or her seat. Again, in Australia, it's a bit different. They don't leave the party. They stop going to party meetings in the House. Nonetheless, there are certain things that do go above politics, and the Speaker being voted down like that means that the government does not value the constitution, it does not value the law, it does not value anything but its own political survival and its own rotting. And I'm also very angry at the mainstream media because the bit of stuff I have seen, I will be fair, has been really good. But this should have been decried on every front page, on every lead television story, on every internet page. Those people who haven't called it out are complicit, whether you like it or not. And I don't care how senior you are, I don't care how respected you are as a journalist. If you didn't call it out, if you weren't appalled, there is something wrong with you and there's something wrong with your morality. And if it's to do with the fact that editors upstairs or publishers above them stopped it, then stand up to them. They are third-rate nobodies. What are you doing? Get back to work. And... To the Labor Party, to the opposition, where is Mark Dreyfus's constitutional knowledge? Why hasn't he come out? And maybe he hasn't, it hasn't been published. But I don't understand why the place isn't being shaken to its foundations. The Governor-General should have dismissed the government and called an election, installed Anthony Albanese as Prime Minister, he loses the vote of confidence, they go to an election and then by rights the government being completely blown out of the water, although for reasons I've already alluded to, that may not be the case. If we don't take the Constitution of Australia seriously, and I don't mean this in the American, it's a sacred document, I mean that it is the foundation of Australian law. What laws do we have and what is the point of any law?
just on a few other issues within politics, the ACT restrictions were eased on Thursday night with businesses opening up to the public. The ACT has got the highest vaccination rate in Australia at 95% first dose and then 84% fully vaccinated. So that means that within a couple of weeks, the ACT will have 95% vaccination coverage and that's fantastic. Victoria has actually eased their restrictions as well. They're at 70% of double vaccinations. Now we've been critics of state governments opening up too quickly, especially in New South Wales. Well, maybe we got some of that a little bit wrong, but they're all starting to open up now. The other factor is that WA and Queensland still have border closures to New South Wales and Victoria, as do South Australia and Tasmania. There's still a long way to go with this vaccination process and the politics of all of this, of course. It appears that coronavirus will end up being the disease of the unvaccinated. People will have to receive their boosters on a yearly basis, similar to the influenza vaccines that have been floating around for a long, long time. And to me, this is probably going to be the next political flashpoint. WA is suggesting that only vaccinated people can come through to Western Australia. And if you're not vaccinated, well, you have to self-isolate or be in hotel quarantine for 14 days. I've noticed that Scott Morrison's rhetoric has softened recently as well. He's focusing on more about that congratulations to people for getting vaccinated or getting out of lockdown. So has Josh Frydenberg over the past couple of days as well. Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, they've been attacking the Victorian government, the WA government, the Queensland government for a whole range of different reasons, whether it's on border closures, whether it's on lockdowns, whether it's on slow vaccination rates, but they've totally changed their tune over the past couple of days. Does this suggest that there's something else going on behind the scenes? I think there's a sense in which they feel they've won. The policy of the federal government has been to live with the virus. I think they're getting ready for surges. We already have very stressed health systems at the state level. They're not going to get less stressed. I think, too, they're trying to get on a... Because Australia has, even though it could have done better, it has done fairly well in terms of numbers. And I think there's a lot of people climbing onto that success. Um, I've noticed a few Victorian anti-lockdown people have jumped through and said, you know, oh, we've done it. And then have been slapped down by people who said, all you did was whinge and complain. So I think there's that idea of jumping onto the, the winning side when you've been on the other side all along as well. There is another federal sitting week next week, and then there's another one in late November. November, as most people in politics like to say, that's the killing season within politics. Can we expect any sort of movement in leadership on either side of politics. It is harder to work the numbers because not all of the MPs are actually in Canberra, but is there likely to be any sort of movement coming up in November? And Anthony Albanese has been telling his supporters to get ready for a December election, but is this to stop people thinking about a change of leadership or is there something else going on? We also had the situation of Tony Smith, maybe he thinks, well, what's the point of resigning now if there's an election just around the corner? We've got Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg being nice to people again for a change. Are all of these little pointers as to some dramatic movement that's happening within federal politics or something that's likely to happen? We've constantly ruled out the possibility of a November election, not that it's up to us to call it anyway, but we've constantly said, look, there's very slim chance of an election either in November or at some point this year. But is that still something on the radar? 
I don't think a November election is impossible. Although 33 days is the shortest period you can have an electoral campaign. So uh, if he was to call it, he'd be calling it in the next couple of days. Now, very possible. But with ICAC bringing him in and Gladys Berejiklian being called in for two days and Daryl Maguire being called in for half a day next week and then I suspect another day or so the week after, I don't know that the Prime Minister would want any nasty surprises that might impact him or one of his ministers. I still think a November election is highly unlikely, but I've thought things are highly unlikely before and have been proven wrong, so I'm not going to say any more. I still think it'll be March. Oh, well, there's so many things that are unlikely within politics that do end up taking place. The arguments against the December election have been that, oh, people are too distracted during December. No one's going to really focus on an election campaign in December. New South Wales and Victoria are just coming out of their respective lockdown periods. People are thinking more about the end of the year. They're thinking more about Christmas, what they're going to do during this time, purchasing presents and that sort of thing. But I'd suggest that this is exactly what Scott Morrison would want, a distracted electorate that's thinking about other things. They're not thinking about politics. They're thinking about the good times. They're thinking about Christmas. They're thinking about everything else except for politics. Like They're probably not thinking about politics even at the best of times, but Christmas would be the perfect time for an election because people are distracted. They're thinking about absolutely everything else except for politics. And in that sort of situation, well, anything can happen. If people are not focused on the details, well, they probably remain with the current government. It's an illegitimate government, as we've just seen with the Speaker. The government has no legitimacy, it has no credibility. So any time given to examine this shows it up very quickly. He's a coward. He runs from fights. He won't address people he needs to address. I'm wondering if December might be the one after saying March all this time. I wonder if he will try and put it in December. The issue is, of course, he likes his holidays and he generally has December and January off. And I don't know that he'd want to work during those two because he's not known for his work ethic, unlike nearly every other prime minister who, regardless of their faults, worked extremely hard. Very few people begrudge John Howard his two weeks up on the north coast of New South Wales in January every year. Even if you hated Howard, no one doubted he worked. Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, they all worked. Tony Abbott, probably not so much. When Abbott did go on holidays, he tended to spend a couple of weeks with the volunteer fire brigade and doing things like that too. So there was that. And Turnbull is known as a, as a hard worker. So we have a prime minister who doesn't like to work, needing to work in a period that he generally prefers to have off. So again, that may be a factor in, in choosing it. However, the stakes are high. It's an illegitimate government. It shouldn't win an election by any standard. This isn't just me. I don't like their policies. This is, they have totally undermined government. They have totally undermined good government. They have totally undermined public trust. They shouldn't win the next election. So his best chance is, a, I think you're right, a distracted and otherwise occupied electorate not thinking about it and voting and he only needs to win by one seat he only needs to maintain the seats he has that may be a challenge 
That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.